Today's reading is taken from Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 62. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. 
Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Uh, well, good afternoon. Uh, let me add my welcome to, to, to Robbins. For those of you whom uh, I haven't met before, my name's Johnny. I'm on the leadership team here too, uh, and we are delighted to have you with us uh, this morning. Uh, we've already had a reading. Thank you to Candice for reading from Luke 22, uh, and it would be helpful to me, uh, and I trust to you, to have that open in front of you as we think about it together over the next few minutes. But before we do that, uh, I'm going to pray for us. So let me lead us in prayer. The psalmist writes, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Our God and Father, we praise you as a good and loving God. And we ask that as we consider your word together this morning, you would help us to rightly appreciate the extraordinary goodness and love that you have shown towards us in Jesus. We ask these things for his name's sake. Amen. Well, as we begin, I want to take you back with me to a job interview I had a number of years ago. It was for a job as a trainee solicitor with a firm in Glasgow, and I'd prepared fairly thoroughly for the interview. I knew the ins and outs of the firm itself pretty well, and I could just about remember what I'd written on my own application form, which is always helpful. And the interview was going relatively well as far as I was concerned, until they asked me a question that that kind of blindsided me. The question was this, what is your biggest failure in life? What is your biggest failure in life? Now, to this day, some years later, in the cold light of day, I still have absolutely no idea how you're meant to answer that kind of question in an interview. Answers on a postcard, please. In case you're interested, though, as to how I answered it, it was a job interview, of course, so my answer had something to do with the time that I worked just too hard and was just too much of a perfectionist. Needless to say, I didn't actually get the job at the end of the day. But it is a pretty difficult question to answer honestly, isn't it? And not just when you're asked it in an interview. It's a hard question to answer because even when in our heart of hearts we know that we have failed, we often don't want to admit it. We don't want to admit that we still fail, that we do it often. It's an uncomfortable thing to have to open up to, isn't it? 
And even if we are willing to admit to our failings, it's still a hard question to answer because even taking a moment or two to think back on failings in our past, well, it can be acutely painful as the various people we've hurt or let down are brought to mind. The ways in which we've shamelessly prioritized our own interests at the expense of other people's. The times that we fail to abide by even our own often arbitrary moral standards. What's your biggest failure in life? Well, it's a hard question to answer, both because we don't want to admit to failure and because even when we do, remembering it can be painful. Now, as, as Robin has mentioned, we are continuing our studies in Luke's account of the life of Jesus this morning. And the reason I've begun, as I have done, with that cheerful focus on failure is that failure is very much the water we're swimming in this morning. You might well have noticed that as uh, Candace helpfully read the passage for us a few moments ago. Luke draws our attention towards a litany of failures. Peter, for example. Peter comprehensively fails to stand with Jesus. He denies him again and again and literally again. Jesus' disciples, another example, they fail to stay up and pray with him even when the reason he wants them to pray is so they won't fail. You see that? This, this whole unit in Luke's gospel is awash with failure. And there are two reasons that Luke records this collection of failures, I think, moral and spiritual and even physical failures of his people, I think. The first reason is to hold a mirror up to each of us. See, it wasn't just religious leaders or, or Roman authorities who rejected Jesus, although they, they did. We've seen that in our studies in recent weeks. No, it was even some of his closest followers. And that will force, I think, each of us to reckon with our own failings. They're not just someone else's, they're ours. And not only that, to reckon with quite how serious they are. That's the first reason. It will hold a mirror up to us. The second reason that Luke wants us to clock this collection of failures in Luke 22 is Luke doesn't just want his readers to catch sight of our own weaknesses, our own disloyalty. He wants to show us what to do with those weaknesses and failures and disloyalty. He wants us to be confident that there is an answer to our failings. And that answer is to be found in Jesus. Okay, that's where we're heading this morning. Let's look at it a bit more closely under our first heading. Yeah, I should say you will hopefully have been handed a service sheet on your way in, possibly tucked inside a black church Bible. It would be helpful, I think, for you to have that open. There is a rough structure at the bottom of that service sheet that does show you how I think these various scenes in this unit of Luke's account fit together to make one big point. But anyway, our first heading this morning is this. As Jesus' followers, we fail to stand with him. Now we pick up Luke's account and we're with Jesus and his closest followers as they've just been eating the Passover meal. We, we, we read the first chunk of that last week. This week we step in at verse 31 where Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, it's just worth noting there that the word you in verse 31 is plural. 
Jesus is talking to Peter, but he's talking about all of his followers, all of the disciples. Satan has demanded to have you guys, Jesus is saying, to sift you all, to test you all, to see which of you will be left standing at the end. And Peter's pretty confident that he's up to that kind of test. Just look at that with me. Verse 33, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. No, you won't, says Jesus. In fact, not only are you not going to go with me to to, to prison, Peter, you're going to end up denying even knowing me. And not just once, but three times. Ouch. Seems fairly abrupt, perhaps even a bit harsh. But as we read on in Luke's account, we see that it's absolutely on the money. Just look on with me to scene 7, verses 54 to 62. We rejoin the story after Jesus has been arrested. Peter's sitting in a courtyard during a late night hearing at the high priest's house. People outside are warming themselves by a fire in the middle of the courtyard when a servant girl sees Peter across the courtyard and identifies him as having been with Jesus. Verse 56 this man was with him. To which Peter fires back, quick as a flash, verse 57, woman, I do not know him. Same thing happens again, verse 58, someone recognizes him as one of Jesus' followers and calls him out. And Peter again denies it, man, I'm not. Until lastly, verse 59, an hour later, and just notice that, an hour later, the same thing happens again. This time someone picks up on Peter's accent. You even sound like the group who used to follow him around. You must be one of Jesus' followers. Man, I do not know what you're talking about, says Peter. At which point, the deed's done. The cockerel crows. Jesus looks at Peter and his capitulation is complete. Now, just notice with me for a moment the sheer extent of Peter's failure. It's repeated failure. He denies Jesus not just once, but three times. It's a failure in loyalty. This is one of Jesus' closest followers, and here he is pretending in his direst hour, his hour of real need, pretending he doesn't even know him. It's a thought-through failure. Jesus had warned him that this test was coming, and there was even an hour between the second and the third denial for Peter to have a think about what he might say if this happens again. And he does the same thing. And it's even a moral failure. On each occasion, Peter tells a bare-faced lie to disassociate himself from Jesus. The point is, Peter's failure is comprehensive, any way you look at it. Now, I'm not trying to demonize Peter by highlighting all of that. I do think that Luke wants us to see that in him, and to see in particular that it's Peter who's denying Jesus in quite such a brazen way. Remember, Jesus had said that Satan's going to sift you, all of you disciples. But Luke's camera lingers on Peter's sifting in particular. Why? 
Well, I think because up to this point in Luke's gospel, Peter's shown himself to be among the best, the, the keenest, the clearest of the bunch. If anyone can stand the test, if anyone will stand with Jesus when things get really tough, well, it's him. And he falls apart. And the point, I think, is that if even Peter can't stand the test, if even Peter fails quite so comprehensively, then so will we. And in fact, so have we. And I wonder if you need convincing of that this morning. Let me return to the question I asked you to ponder a few minutes ago about your biggest failure in life. Let's narrow the scope of the question a little. What's the greatest moral or spiritual failure in your life? Now, as I ask that, it's quite possible you feel pretty defensive about that kind of question. I'm not perfect, you might think, but I haven't done anyone any real harm. In fact, morally, I'm much better than half the people I know, even even half the religious people I know. I'm no moral or spiritual failure, thank you very much. And you see, that's where the punch of Luke's account really lands home. Because failing Jesus doesn't just look like egregious moral failure, as we might understand it in our culture. Failing Jesus fundamentally looks like a rejection of him, a refusal to identify with him, or to put it in Luke's terms, an unwillingness to take up a cross to follow him. That's something that even one of his closest followers, Peter, failed to do. And in fact, it's a failure that all of us are guilty of. And let me ask you this morning, if you are offended by that idea, let me ask you just to think on it. To reflect on how many times you've failed, even by your own standards. Never mind when measured against those of a perfect God. Never mind when measured against your willingness to identify with Jesus. Or perhaps you are a Christian and you know this kind of failure in your life all too well. Failure in loyalty to Jesus when there's a conversation in the staff room or with a group of friends about a a hot button issue that's been in the news. Someone turns to you. What do you think about it? You're one of those Christians, aren't you? You you guys are meant to have an opinion about this kind of thing. And this can't just be my experience. Your tongue swells up to about three times its normal size, doesn't it? Every ounce of moisture that was ever in your mouth has suddenly disappeared. And you bottle it. You try and evade the question or you change the subject. A failure in loyalty to Jesus. Or moral failure. Knowing how God would have you live. Knowing the kind of life that he has called you to as a follower of his, but failing to live like it again and again. We have all failed. And Luke wants to shine a great big spotlight on that. Now, as you reflect on those kind of failures in your own life, as you bring them to your mind, I mentioned earlier, it might well be an acutely painful thing because the memory of our failures can just sit like a lead weight in our stomachs, can't it? But let me ask you another question. 
What do you do with that sense of failure when it comes to your mind? What do you do with it? See, my guess is that a lot of us just, just try and uh, kind of forget about it if we can. Put it out of our minds. Hope that the passage of time will, will kind of deaden any feelings of regret or remorse. Others still might try and knuckle down and, and, and kind of make it right again. <laughs> prove to Jesus, and perhaps more to the point, prove to ourselves that we really are good enough to follow him. Well, the reason I'm asking that question is that Luke doesn't just intend to shine a spotlight on our own feelings, though he does. He also wants to show us what to do with them. Or more to the point, he wants to show us what God has done with them. Let's think about that under our second heading this morning. Jesus willingly stands for his failing followers at the cross. Now, some of you will know that the Champions League final, one of the, the biggest games in world football, recently happened in Paris. My beloved Air United narrowly missed out on the final this year. Um, so, excuse me. Um, so it was contested between Liverpool and Real Madrid. Uh, and you may or may not take any interest in football whatsoever. That's not really actually that important. Because in some ways, the game itself wasn't really the story. The events surrounding the game have become the story because before the game kicked off, thousands of fans tried to make their way into the stadium when French police used tear gas and other kind of riot policing tactics on them. There are a number of competing accounts of, of why it was that that happened, but one of the reasons given in the early hours after it did happen is that criminals, French gangs, had found their way in among the football fans. And it, by accident, Genuine football fans were caught up with members of criminal gang networks when those criminals were being tear-gassed. Or in other words, despite being innocent, the police counted them as though they were actually criminals. Now, whether that is what really happened or not, I'm not sure. I'm sure we'll find out over the coming days. But it does go some way towards illustrating Jesus' answer to the problem of our failures. What do I mean? Well, just look at it with me, verses 35 to 38. Jesus is speaking to his followers, and he begins to explain that things are about to change for them. It, see, when they used to go out preaching about him in towns and villages, they could travel light. They could bank on people feeding them wherever they went. They didn't have to worry that much about their own safety. Things were relatively easy. But all of that is about to change, says Jesus. They're all about to be under the cosh for following him. The heat is about to be turned right up. Why? Jesus explains, verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 53. It was written around 700 years earlier. And the quote is a prophecy. It's a prophecy about one who would himself be innocent of, of law-breaking or of transgression, but would be numbered among those who had transgressed, treated as though he was one. Like an innocent football fan, being counted as though they were a part of a criminal gang. And he says, that person Isaiah was talking about, that's me. 
despite having done nothing wrong, I'm going to be counted or numbered as a transgressor. I'm going to be treated like I'm a lawbreaker. That's why everything's about to change for you guys, why you're going to be under the cosh, because you're going to be following someone who's counted as a criminal. And what Jesus predicts in verse 37 comes to pass from verse 47 and following. Just scan over that with me. Verse 47, as Jesus is betrayed with a kiss, he is arrested with swords and clubs. And strikingly, he is treated, verse 52, as though he were a robber, a criminal. One might even say a transgressor. But it is worth just pausing for a minute and joining the dots up a little, because so far we have, we have Peter failing Jesus comprehensively. And we have Jesus saying he's going to be counted as a criminal, treated as a transgressor. What is the link between those two ideas? Well, when Jesus quoted Isaiah 53, he didn't quote the whole verse. Let me read you the rest of it. Isaiah 53, Isaiah wrote this. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And this is where my Champions League final illustration falls apart a bit. Because you see, the point isn't just that Jesus is treated as a criminal despite not being one, like a football fan mixed up with the wrong crowd. A more accurate illustration might be an innocent football fan who sees criminals behaving badly from a bit of a distance, and then who sees that tear gas is about to be used on those criminals, and yet he shouts, stop, don't fire at them, fire at me. Jesus isn't being treated as a wrongdoer for no reason. He's being treated as a wrongdoer to deal with other people's wrongdoing. Even the wrongdoing of someone like Peter. That's why Luke has arranged these scenes in the way that he has done. If you see that structure on the back of your service sheet with Peter's failings as bookends at either end of things, and Jesus promised to deal with people's failings in the middle He's showing us that Jesus is going to be counted as a wrongdoer to pay for the wrongdoing of even someone like Peter. Peter's culpability for his thought-through disloyalty to Jesus, for his repeated disloyalty to Jesus, for lying about his relationship to Jesus. Peter was culpable for all of those failures, and Jesus is saying he's come to take the punishment for each and every one. Now, if you aren't quite convinced by that structure or that that's Luke's intention, let me just show you that that is, I think, what Luke has in mind. Because as we move further and further in towards the center of this unit to scene four, verses 39 to 46, we see exactly how Jesus plans to pay for Peter's wrongdoing. Just look at those verses with me, 39 to 46. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives with his closest followers. He charges them to stay awake and to pray. And he withdraws on his own, verse 41, about a stone's throw. And he kneels down and prays. And just notice his prayer. Father, if you are willing, 
Remove this cup from me. But what cup? What's Jesus asking his father to do there? Well, the cup is another Old Testament reference. In fact, it's an Isaiah reference again. Isaiah writes this. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs. See, the pictures of a cup not filled with wine, but filled with wrath, with God's wrath, his settled right anger. The anger that would see all acts of human evil in the world shown for what they are and judged for what they are that would see all hidden injustice in the world brought out into the light, kicking and screaming though it might be, and punished for what it is. All acts of betrayal, all acts of moral failure held to account. And in one sense, that should be real cause for rejoicing among us this morning, that, even, that one day, even hidden evils, the things that people seem to have gotten away with in this life that feel so unjust, well, they're going to be made plain They'll be judged by a perfect judge. And that is a wonderful prospect in one sense, but in another sense, well, it's a dreadful prospect. Because as we've already seen this morning, if all acts of moral failure, all acts of betrayal of God himself are to be punished, well, that includes our betrayals, our moral failures. Because just as Peter was culpable, so are we. This cup should be ours to drink. And yet as Jesus prays in Luke 22, he's staring down the barrel of that, not because he himself deserves to be judged. He's the only one in human history who doesn't. But he's anticipating that he will drink this cup that he will on the cross which will happen shortly afterwards on the cross experience the full weight of God's anger of God's right judgment of human rebellion against them and just notice that even Jesus anticipation of that coming event is agony not just the event itself the anticipation of the event verse 44 Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Even staring down the barrel of what's coming uh, over the next day or so is excruciating. But although it is, and although the prospect that Jesus faced was horrifying, nevertheless, verse 42 Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is knowingly, willingly, resolving to drink the cup of God's wrath. Wrath that is due for our failings at the cross. Now what are we to do with all of that? 
Well, one of the clearest lines of application of this whole unit, I think, is to the Christian who is acutely aware of their own failings. Failings in loyalty to Jesus. Failings in morality. Failings that we've repeated again and again and again. We have each failed Jesus and we're culpable for those failings. But the truth that Luke wants you to be certain of this morning is not that they don't matter. It's not that they're not a big deal. It's that those failings have been paid for. That although none of us have stood with Jesus, that at the cross... Jesus stood for us. Although none of us have stood with Jesus at the cross, Jesus stood for us. Now, humanly speaking, that doesn't necessarily mean that the knock-on effects of our failings will suddenly disappear, that, that, that broken relationships will be mended overnight. But it does mean that we needn't bury our failings and wait for our sense of shame to dispel with the passage of time. We don't need to work even harder to try and make things right with God again. Prove to him that he didn't get it wrong and he decided to love us as he has. No, we come back to God in acknowledgement of our weakness, of our failing, of our sin, And we ask his forgiveness with confidence that he will forgive. Why? Because Jesus drained the cup to its dregs. Now, isn't that a wonderful thing? Now, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, I do wonder how all of that sounds to you. Might well sound outrageous. My comment earlier that you've failed God might still be stuck in your throat. But the Bible is clear, and not just in this portion we've read this morning, the Bible throughout is clear that that is true. And Peter's failings do make that point fairly powerfully, I think. That human culpability before God isn't just reserved for for, for the Adolf Hitlers of this world. That all of us have failed him. All of us stand rightly condemned for that failure and that the penalty for that failure is right, is fair, and is terrible. And it will come. And yet the wonderful good news of Jesus, and listen, it is wonderful good news, is that even as he contemplated how dreadful that condemnation would be, As he stared into that cup, he still knowingly, willingly said, not my will, but your will be done. And on the cross, he drank the cup so that anyone who would trust in him, who would treasure him, wouldn't have to. So let me ask you what you'll do with that this morning ask you whether you acknowledge your failings, failings of Jesus, in multiple different ways, moral, spiritual, in loyalty, will you acknowledge your failings of God in the quiet of your own heart? Will you ask for his forgiveness for those failings? And will you trust in him, in his wrath 
draining death on the cross on your behalf. Listen, you can do it right now in the quiet of your own heart. And it's my hope and it's been my prayer all week that someone here might do just that. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning and having stared into the mirror that Peter holds up to us in Luke's account, we acknowledge our many, many failings in loyalty to you, in morality. We confess that we have not stood with you And yet we praise you, Lord Jesus, as one who has stood for us. Though you were innocent, were numbered among those who were not. Though you'd lived a perfect life, you drank from the cup of your wrath, God our Father, bearing the weight of good and right judgment of human sin, of our sin, on your own shoulders. Help us, please, to appreciate that today. That for those of us here who are believers in the Lord Jesus, who've trusted in him, but who are trapped in cycles of guilt and shame for our many failings of you, we would see this morning really clearly your absolutely sufficient wrath-bearing death on our behalf and would rejoice, would just breathe in your extraordinary grace and kindness towards us this morning and the freedom that it brings. And we do pray too this morning that you would please impress upon any listening who have yet to trust in you the reality of our failings and the stakes involved when they decide whether or not to trust in your death on their behalf. And we ask that even today, someone here would bow the knee before you, would ask your forgiveness, perhaps for the very first time, and receive your extraordinary mercy. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.